consider this you have been on a safety differently safety 2 new view or a hop course and you've come out absolutely transformed you found answers to so many questions that have bothered you for so many years as a hsc professional after a reflective weekend you get back to the office your bo- boss walks up to you and asks hey man how was the course last week you tell him everything you have learned and how you spent the entire weekend thinking about how many great ideas you've had in mind for your next site visit and you make a strong business case not just a safety case for what you say your boss looks at you incurious and disinterested and says sounds good can you please get that investigation closed out today the ceo is expecting to present it to the board tomorrow and please keep it simple as he walks away it's more than 6 months you've been on the course and you read so many books but you still haven't had a chance to influence the desired change that you aim for if you're wondering what you might be missing to bring contemporary safety thinking into your organization this podcast will make absolute sense to you in an organization where senior leadership is rewarded a bonus that measures five times more than their salaries for bringing in new business and penalized a mere 3% cut in their annual salary when it comes to a fatality convincing your bosses to switch from old to new view safety one to safety two or human error to human performance will only take you so far until you realize that you have hit the ceiling it's a problem that most contemporary thinkers and safety scientists don't contemplate much less discuss it openly in their work welcome to another episode of embracing differences with me nepin anand where i'm joined by the world leading safety scientist professor andrew hopkins who takes the bull by the horns and helps us understand why we should be spending more time and efforts to understand the structure of an organization in an intelligent but very accessible manner what i learned from andrew hopkins is that organizations are less about building relationships trust or a common language to communicate our concerns and more about understanding power relationships of course hopkins avoids using abstract concepts like power greed or rapacity instead he builds upon a far more comprehensible and intuitively recognizable term structure meaning what incentivizes or deters people in position of power to do what they do talking to another safety scientist and a great friend arvin pipilady just last week i brought up my discussion with hopkins to him and said ivan this is what hopkins has to say and ivan responded to me saying come to think of it nepin we talk about local rationality why does it make sense for people to do what they do but how often do we attempt to make sense of boardroom decisions and the dynamics between the ceo and board members using the principles of local rationality hmm brilliant point thank you ivan so why are all our efforts to understand local rationality limited to workers and managers only hasn't this discourse about local rationality limited our framework of thinking listen to andrew hopkins you bet it would make you think and i always say this you have no reasons to believe andrew or for that matter any so called expert keep an open mind well greetings to you all my name is andrew hopkins as you probably know i'm fascinated by the world of work and industry and i bring a sociological perspective to that i'm a sociologist i've spent most of my life at the australian national university in canberra um and some of you will know of some of my books so it's a pleasure to be here today 
Great. We're also very excited to have you. Would you like to give us an introduction to what is it that you want to talk about today? Yes, certainly. Thanks, uh, Nipin. It's quite an opportunity you give me because uh, I'd like to speak about my latest book called Organising for Safety, How Structure Creates Culture. And in some respects, that encapsulates an argument that I've been making in many of my books for years, but I'm making it in a more concentrated way here than I have previously. So let me start by saying, suppose you want to create a certain culture in your organization, say a culture that emphasizes process safety or operational excellence, or whatever it might be you're seeking to create. And the argument of my book, in a nutshell, is that to do this, you need to set up the appropriate organizational structure. It's that structure which will give you the culture that you want. Now, before I develop that, I just want to acknowledge that this is a controversial argument, that there are other points of view around. And the, the leading one, which I want to just mention, is that the way you create a culture is by running educational campaigns, the aim of which is to change the hearts and minds of people, to change the way they think, to change their values. And that's a very um, frequent strategy which organizations adopt when they are seeking to change the culture of their organization. I'll give you one example. It comes from the petroleum company Shell. A number of years ago now, they set out to change their culture, increase their focus on operational excellence. And they ran what they called a hearts and minds campaign. It was based upon the work of Patrick Hudson. Some of you will know his work, and in particular, his notion of um, the organizational maturity ladder or the safety culture ladder, which divides the cultures of organizations into five different categories. The lowest one is pathological, and the highest one is generative, which simply means a high-functioning safety culture. So their aim was to move their organization up that ladder. They did this by running their campaign. They put their, all their employees, 250,000 employees, through educational campaign. And it was successful in some respects. People learned the language of the maturity scale. They learned about pathological cultures and generative cultures. They could use that language, but nothing changed significantly in the organization. And Patrick Hudson, the author of this approach, wrote later an analysis of it. And what he said was that nothing changed because the organizational structure hadn't changed. What they needed to do was to set in place systems of reward and recognition, which would encourage those behaviors which they were seeking to create. But they hadn't done that, so nothing had changed. And there are many other stories. BP um, had a similar experience, uh, which I won't talk about now. But that's the background, I guess, which leads me to think that it's structural change, organizational change, which is vital. So I want to give you some examples of what I'm talking about. What The first one comes from NASA, the National Aeronautical and Space Administration in the US. It concerns the Space Shuttle Columbia. That shuttle in 2003 was destroyed when it returned to Earth and seven astronauts died. What happened was that pieces of external cladding of an external fuel tank, foam cladding, fell off the fuel tank at the time of launch and hit the shuttle and dented the surface of the shuttle. Now this was happened routinely at launch. And so there were a lot of these dings on the shuttle, but, and it certainly wasn't the intention of the designers, but because it happened routinely without damage, it had been normalized. This deviation, this um, what I would call anomaly had been uh, normalized. 
and it was now seen as an acceptable risk. On the occasion in question, with this particular launch in 2003, a piece of foam fell off the external fuel tank and hit the leading edge of the wing of the shuttle and made a hole in that leading edge so that when the shuttle returned to the Earth's atmosphere, the air rushed into that hole and heated up the shuttle and destroyed the shuttle. Now, there was a major inquiry into this, the uh, Columbia Accident Investigation. It was, I guess, a, a recognition that the culture of the organisation was the problem. That was their primary focus. They described it as a broken culture. The culture of, uh, of NASA was faster, better, cheaper and uh, no mention of safety there, so that from a safety point of view, this was a broken culture. Now, it's interesting to me, that's their analysis. The root cause of the problem is, is a broken culture. So what's their solution? How do you change a culture? Um, this is why this is such an important example to me. The way you change that culture is by making an organisational change. And so what they recommended, what the board recommended, was the creation of a particular organisational entity within NASA, a technical engineering authority, which would sit outside of the shuttle launch organization. So it was not constrained by questions of cost or schedule, which dominated the operation of, of the launch organization, shuttle organization, would sit outside that and had the authority to intervene within the shuttle organization on technical questions. It would determine what was anomalous and what was not and what needed to be done about anomalies. And that would ensure that the kind of normalization which occurred in the Columbia case would not occur again. So that's um, a very good example, I think, of what I mean by organizational change, which is needed to uh, create the culture you want. It's interesting that the board drew on the US submarine Navy as its primary example. This is a really a, a much celebrated uh, case, which many theorists go back to, because in 1963, that's more than 50 years ago, the first nuclear submarine was introduced into the Navy and they lost a nuclear submarine in a peacetime accident. And they realized they, they couldn't afford to do this. It turns out they had been lose, losing submarines in peacetime accidents at a remarkable rate, about one every three years since in the previous 50 odd years. So a colossal rate of submarine loss they put up with and they realized they couldn't continue. So they introduced this program of SubSafe, which was a, again, an external organization standing outside of the submarine operations, still within Navy, of course, but outside of submarine operations and with the authority to intervene within the submarine program, its normal operations. And since that time, there have been no submarine losses, with one possible exception, but basically no submarine losses in peacetime since. So that's, if you like, a piece of empirical evidence for how effective that kind of intervention is or can be. So that's really the, what lies behind my, my view that a culture of op operational excellence does depend upon having that kind of organizational structure where <clears throat> there is a technical organization separated from the uh, routine day-to-day -day operations, but that technical organization has authority to intervene in the way I've described. Now, the main case study in my book is BP. I've studied BP, the oil, oil company BP, after Condo. Macondo was the name of the well, the oil well, that there was a blowout in 2010 in the Gulf of Mexico. What's really interesting about case study is it's a before and after uh, because they entirely changed their 
organizational structure as a result of the Macondo accident. That accident killed, I think, 11 people, but it also did cost more than 60 billion US dollars to BP. It almost destroyed the company. And quite interesting that it's when companies have a near-death experience like this that they make the kinds of organizational changes. So let me just talk about, about this before and after comparison. Before the accident, BP was a highly decentralized organization. It was probably the most decentralized of all the oil and gas companies. So its operations in the Gulf of Mexico, of course, it's a worldwide company, but it had operations in the Gulf of Mexico. And that operation in the Gulf of Mexico functioned as pretty much an autonomous company. It was responsible to head office for making money, of course. Other than that, the central corporate structure did not exercise control over what was going on in the Gulf of Mexico. In particular, did not exercise any control over uh, the quality of engineering. So as engineers in the Gulf of Mexico were under the control of a very business-oriented independent business unit. What that meant was that these engineers were under constant pressure to save money and to uh, cut corners. That's really one of the root causes what happened, because when they're under those pressures, they do cut corners and they stop asking what is good engineering practice. And they start asking a subtly different question, which is, what is good enough? And I hope you can understand that's a very different question, which leads to the erosion of quality over time. So I would describe the culture of BP in the Gulf of Mexico, the culture of the engineers as a cavalier culture or a, a careless culture, if you like, careless with respect to major accident risk. To dig into that a little more deeply, to understand why that happened, we have to understand the reporting structures within the organization. So those engineers were reporting directly to line managers. And the result of that was that their performance agreements were with line managers whose primary concern was profit and production. And so their um, bonuses were determined by cost cutting and production. And if, you, if that's the way you reward your engineers, then over time that becomes their mindset. And that is what had happened in the Gulf of Mexico. Okay, so that's that decentralized structure in the way that I've just described was really a very fundamental cause and clearly BP thought so too. And that's why they changed their structure uh, following that accident. Their new structure was one in which the engineers, wherever they were in the world, were under centralized control from head office in London. Uh, no longer were they answerable to local commercial managers. They were providing services to local commercial managers, but they were answerable up an engineering functional line to um, a chief engineer in effect in London. And their career prospects will be determined by how well they performed in that context, not by commercial success in the local operation. So that was one factor. And the other one was the safety and operational risk function, which they created. So they had a, a centralized operational risk means in that context, it means major accident risk. So they created a function called safety and operational risk or safety and major accident risk, which was run out of London and it had enormous control over what was going on in, the, in BP's far-flung empire. It had several hundred employees, this function, who were embedded in the business units around the world and sat on the management teams at various levels. 
and could influence decision-making at those various levels, but who reported up their own separate functional line to head office in London, up that safety and operational risk. It operated very much like the Technical Engineering Authority recommended by the Columbia Accident Investigation Board. To me, that's a very important uh, model. And the most recent example of that, by the way, is Boeing. As you know, Boeing had uh, lost two Boeing uh, 737 MAX aircraft just a couple of years ago. And um, again, the fundamental cause of that was the decentralized operation. Business units within Boeing were operating more or less autonomously. And Boeing has now changed that structure. So its engineers no longer report to the local business unit, but they report up a separate line to a chief engineer who is independent of any of those business units. So they've learned the same lesson and implemented that same lesson. Um, There are some qualifications I need to make to this argument now that a a structure like an organizational structure like this like the safety and operational risks um, function in BP cannot guarantee safety this is not a guarantee it will improve your chances of operating safely but it's not a guarantee and BP's had some significant near misses since um, introducing this uh, this new system but it hasn't had another major accident. It had two uh, accidents before introducing this new system. First, the the Macondo accident, and five years earlier than that, we had the Texas City refinery disaster, which killed 15 people and cost the company billions of dollars. But since the reorganisation, it has not had a major accident. Now, that's probably not yet statistically significant. It's very um, encouraging for BP and for those who are following the BP model. But This organizational structural model I'm talking about can be undermined in various ways. The most obvious one is if you don't resource it properly, it won't function properly. And so that's the thing you have to watch out for. You have to be aware that this is expensive. People will resist this model because it will cost money. And so that's a way, one of the uh, problems with trying to introduce a model like this. A second potential underminer is the bonus arrangements which operate in companies. If you reward your people who are, whose primary function is risk management, if you reward those people on the basis of company productivity and profit, you undermine their capacity to perform their risk management job with integrity. There are many examples that support what I've just said, but I don't have time to talk about that now. I think also if, you, if your organisation is one which uh, uh, discourages the reporting of bad news, if, if it does not encourage the reporting of bad news, this will also tend to undermine um, whatever systems you have in place. Finally, the, the attitude of the board of the company is critically important. If the board's primary concern is to protect itself from bad news, then nothing's going to save the organisation in the long run. I mean, I've had the experience talking to people on boards where I realise that that's their primary concern. They don't want me to give them the bad news. The point I'm making then is that companies which which have had these near-death experiences introduce the kinds of changes that I'm talking about. And that, to me, is, is a very powerful piece of evidence in support of what I'm saying. Before I finish, I want to just broaden the discussion a bit and say that This notion that structure, organizational structure creates culture is much broader than safety. 
and uh, applies in situations which have nothing to do with safety. Let me give you two examples. One concerns a culture which I've studied or had some exposure to in the railways. It's a culture of punctuality or what is often called on-time running. And there, it's a very strong culture. It's maintained in, in all kinds of ways. It's one of the striking things about the, the railway system is that on-time running is, is an absolute value. They, they don't always succeed, but this is it's a very powerful drive to run on time. The way I became aware of it was I was studying an accident in a railway system where the driver had been speeding. The cause of the accident was the driver had been speeding. And when we looked into why the driver had been speeding, it was because of the power of this on-time culture. He was running late, so he had to speed, the result of which was a derailment, which killed about seven people. And the question I then asked myself was, well, where does this come from? This, uh, the language that they used to describe this was, on-time running is king. That was the expression that came up again and again in the inquiry. So where does it come from? It was a structure of the organisation which had created this. They were, first of all, there's public pressure for trains run on time, very strong public pressure, which is translated into political pressure. Often there are regulators who will even penalise train companies that don't run on time. And so the organisation has a whole structure which is designed to get people to run on time. There are inspectors, uh, there's a signalling structure, they record the data on, on arrival times. They've got to be arrive at their destination within three minutes. If they don't, there are questions asked. The driver is interviewed. The company will normally monitor arrival times twice a day at uh, peak hours. So they're absolutely onto this. And that's the reason why this culture is paramount. Second example I want to give you is a humorous one in some respects. Um, it's McDonald's, the fast food company. Um, what do we know about McDonald's? First of all, it has a highly decentralized business model. All of its uh, individual outlets are franchises, which means that uh, McDonald's itself as a company is not really too committed to the success or failure of those franchisees. It's up to them to make money and to be profitable. If they fail, that's their problem, not really McDonald's. So it's a highly decentralized business model from that point of view. What's really important to McDonald's is not the survival of any one of those franchise operations. It's the quality, predictability, and the uniformity of the service and the product. And McDonald's controls that very closely and centrally. It has a system of inspectors. It has a system of quality control so that anyone who goes into a McDonald's store anywhere in the world goes through those familiar golden arches, knows what the quality of the service and knows the quality of the product which they are going to be receiving. And so that's the point then, isn't it? That if something's really important to an organisation, it will control it centrally. If it's not so important, it will allow, uh, allow a more decentralised approach. So that's the main argument of the book. The book also contains various other critiques along the way. I do a critique of the anarchist school of safety, um, which I associate with the names of Decker and Holnagel. Um, that school is basically arguing that safety is best left to the workers. And uh, that may be true in some circumstances, but it's certainly not true for major accident risk. I also do a critique of the concept of visible felt leadership, which is a term that's very fashionable at the moment, critique of behavior-based safety. So you'll find a lot of other kinds of ideas in the book along the way.
Thank you. The term independence and authority kept coming back in, in this conversation. And one could argue in some ways that a safety department in most organization actually is independent and seemingly has the authority to do what they're supposed to do. Can you elaborate a little bit on this concept of independence and authority? What kind of authority are we talking about here? Okay. Yes, um, some of these very large organizations will have a, a director of safety who sits on the management board, and in that they have a degree of independence from any of the business units. So that's a tick in that respect. However, they don't exercise real authority. Their role in almost always is ultimately advisory. What you'll find is they'll say, we set the standards, we, we develop the technical standards in the corporate centre, we don't have a role in enforcing them. We do from time to time carry out audits, but our fundamental role when it comes to dealing with the business units is advisory. We are a resource which is available for uh, those units if that's what they want, but it is not our responsibility to ensure, compl to ensure compliance with those standards. And we don't have the authority to intervene and shut down an operation if it's not in compliance with the standards. So that's what I mean when I say the role of these safety departments often doesn't have the requisite authority. Great. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. Thank you for joining us. Really enjoyed okay. talking to you. Yes. Thank you, Nipian. What do you think? I thought it was a thought-provoking session that challenges at, at many levels especially at the time when we have been bogged down by so many competing theories in safety sciences and this complexity narrative. After listening to Andrew Hopkins, I'm thinking, why should leadership come to terms with admitting that there are recurring patterns of resource constraints or goal conflicts in everyday work? Or start to accept that there is a significant disconnect between boardroom thinking and control room realities? No matter how well we dress them up, these are systemic problems that would always get brushed under the carpet if the rewards and incentives are not designed to make them visible and intelligible. So thank you, Professor Andrew Hopkins, for so many empirical examples and reminding us that any genuine attempt to improve safety should first begin with understanding and addressing the structure of our organization. And we should always start from the top. What is more, Hopkins' work extends far beyond safety to include quality, reliability, operational excellence, technical excellence, and even the long-term survival of an organization. Fascinating. If you find the podcast interesting, I invite you, I encourage you to read Andrew Hopkins' latest book, Organizing for Safety, How Structure Creates Culture. And I've included the link below for you in this podcast transcription. So thank you once again uh, for listening to the podcast. And next week, I will bring you something even more interesting. Till, till then, bye-bye.